I want to welcome you guys all to Rock Fellowship. Thank you so much for being here. Um, whether you're here in person or watching online, thanks so much. And uh, for those of you guys who are here, if this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. If this is your first time in a long time at church, man, we're so thankful that you spend, are spending this time with us. And if you're always here, I love seeing you guys and I'm happy to see you today. We are starting a brand new series. And um, here's the cool thing about this series. Um, as you guys know, at Rock Fellowship, there are two pastors, me and Pastor Jonathan. And what I try to do throughout the year is occasionally I give Pastor Jonathan assignments and tasks in order for him to, to grow and to stretch himself as a pastor because one day, I know we don't like to think about this, one day, we don't know when, hopefully way, way, way in the future, he will pastor a different church. Mm, I know, what a bad way to start this sermon. Boo. <laughs> And uh, he needs to learn, right? And so a couple weeks ago, I gave him a test. Pastor Jonathan, I want you to come up with the series. So before, he's come up with his own sermon topics, but now I want you to come up with the series. And so uh, he came up with an idea, and we talked about it, and that's where we landed. So if you don't like the series, it's his fault, not my fault. <laughs> but we started this, we're starting this series today, and um, it's called Protect This Mess. Protect this mess. And let me be very clear from the very beginning. This mess I'm referring to is you. And it's me. And it's us. And it's you and that person. And it's me and that person. And it's you and them and them and them and them and them and them and them. This mess that we're talking about for the next couple of weeks that we are trying to protect is what we call this beautiful mess that we call church. It's the community because it's messy. And I know you guys look fantastic today. You guys all did your hair right. You guys shaved and stuff like that. Some of you are like, I didn't do my hair today. But you look good anyway. But even though we may look right here in front of each other, life is messy and, and relationships are messy. And so in this series, we're going to talk about how can we protect this mess. And we got to be honest, this is a mess. When you bring people together of all kinds of, all kinds of people from all kinds of places with different values and different opinions and different experiences, it's going to get messy, but that is the church. And that's kind of what's beautiful about it in that the way that Jesus kind of brings us together, but it's still a mess. And it's on our, jo it's our job as followers of Jesus to protect it. So that's what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. How can we protect this beautiful mess that we call the church. And so today is really a foundational message to, to apply some context to some teaching around how Jesus viewed the community of believers and his community of followers. And by providing this context, it's going to open our mind and understanding and as far as how Jesus understood what the church was supposed to be like. Not what we want or what I want, but how Jesus saw the church. And in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about specific issues that threaten the community of, of believers. Certain issues that we are probably guilty of, things that we've done, things that we need to keep in mind so that we can, as we're saying, protect this mess. So that's what we're going to be doing for the next couple of weeks. I want to invite you guys to pray with me as we get into today's talk. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, so much for this day, and I thank you, Lord, so much for all the people here uh, and I pray that those who are missing and not here, I pray that somehow they may hear this message as well, because this pertains to every single one of us, God. So I ask that you'd be here in this place, Father, as we sung just recently, that you would pour your spirit out and that we'd be in your presence. 
and that your will would be done here at this church, in this community, as it is in heaven. your name we pray. Amen. How many of you guys uh, saw this movie in Kanto? How many of you guys saw this movie? Can you raise your hand if you saw this movie? Okay, I need to see, uh, raise it high, okay? Okay, okay, a pretty good amount. How many people did not see this movie in Kanto? Okay, all right. Um, all right, so this movie right now in Kanto is like huge right now. It is big, right? This is like really out there. Like it's a global phenomenon, a global sensation. It's a huge movie, right? And um, right now one of their songs, uh, what's the song called? The most famous song? We don't talk about Bruno. It is the, it is the highest, uh, I think, a highest ranked song, Disney song in the last 26 years on the Billboard charts, right? Like this song is huge, this movie is huge, and it's big, right? Like, like if you search Encanto, one of the suggested like uh, search things is why is Encanto so popular? And so a lot of people at the same time are, are seeing this movie is so big, so many people love it and it's really big, but what, what's the big deal? Now, I'm gonna be honest with you. I watched it and it was good. It was good, okay? It wasn't like phenomenal, like for me, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, this is the greatest Disney movie. It's not, right? It was good, I enjoyed it, but it's not crazy. So I even had that question, why is it so popular? Like why do people love this so much? And I was like thinking about it, and yeah, you know, there's like superpowers, so like that's awesome, right? Superpowers there, there's, uh, there's a lot of representation, right? Like all, like all, the, all the characters and also all the actors who play those characters are, are Latino, and it's, it's set in a town in Colombia, so it's like, you know, legit. It's like, it, it's great, right? And there's great songs, awesome. So of course it would be so popular, but, but as a lot of people are commenting on the popular of Encanto, that's not why they're saying it's such a big deal, right? Because other Disney movies had good songs. Other Disney movies had superpowers, right? Uh, I.e. my favorite Disney movie, The Incredibles, right? Um, and, but but this, is, this takes the cake. This is like huge. And a lot of re the reason why people are saying this is such a big deal and why people love it so much is this. People relate to the family in this movie. People relate to the family. And if you haven't seen the movie, you're like, I don't know what that means. But we'll talk a little bit about what that means. People relate, they like see their own parents in the parents in the family. They see their own cousins. They see their grandma in abuela, right? Like they see everything, like that's my life. That's what they think. They relate to it, that's their family. And then they look at some of the characters and like, I feel like that character, right? There's one character who is super strong, has this uh, super strength, but she feels the pressure always by her family to perform and to hold everything together. And she feels that pressure. And people are like, I feel like Louisa. I feel like I got so much pressure on my shoulders, right? I got to bear the weight of the world. And there's another girl, the other sister, who's so perfect and beautiful, and she's expected to continue to be perfect. And people are like, I relate to that. I feel like that expectation from my family, from my parents, from my grandparents, to be perfect. And I just, like, I just can't. And then there are some people who identify with the main character who doesn't have any special abilities and feels kind of like a failure and feels like I'm not very special. People are like, I relate to that. And they relate to this experience with the story. And the thing is, this is not a coincidence. Now, I don't know if Disney planned this. I wouldn't be surprised if they did, but this is not a coincidence that so many people would relate to the family that has found the magical family in Encanto. Because what the family represents is not just a family. The way that family works, it's a thing. There's a term for it, 
right? In society and in culture all throughout history, we see this kind of family. And there is a term, a sociological, cultural, anthropological term for the kind of family represented in Encanto, and it's the term strong group. It's a strong group society that they live in, a strong group family that they live in, a strong group culture. And so let me explain to you guys what a strong group is. Now, there are are two kinds of societies. There's strong group and there's weak group. Strong group and a weak group. The family in Encanto, they're strong group. And in a strong group family or strong group society, the community is of utmost importance. Like the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few always, right? The community is most important. So here's a a little quote from Bruce Molina. He's a Christian and uh, cultural anthropologist. This is how he defines strong group. In a strong group society, a person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, development, career, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with group norms, right, what's normal for the group, and only if the actions in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member. So if you watch the movie, you see this. You can see this dynamic played out, that the family is the most important thing. And what you, you can do what you want to do, but it has to fit within the needs and best interest of the family. Now, some of you guys are thinking, wait a minute, I didn't watch that movie, but that sounds like my family. If you're Korean, you probably felt this. In fact, strong group cultures, you know who fits in strong group cultures? Koreans fit in strong group cultures. Clearly, Latin, Latin families, Latino families, Colombian families, African families, Arabic families, actually, most of the world throughout all time were strong group cultures. The weak group culture, it's kind of an anomaly, and, it, and the only real weak group culture where it's like the individual is the most important is, guess what? Modern America and Europe. But most other societies and cultures are strong groups. So like, of course, everyone identifies because most of us grew up in that home where the family was most important. Right? In our cultures, it's very, very clear. The first generation, if, you, if you're from an immigrant family, you know what this likes. The need of the family was way more important than the individual. Right? It didn't really matter what you wanted to do, what your parents said that you were going to do for your job. That was pretty much it. Now, some of you guys follow along with that. Some of you guys push back against that. Right? But this is like the strong group culture of the family in Encanto, and many of us grew up. Now, for me, I'm kind of half-half. Because I'm, I'm a second generation, uh, uh, I came here, I was born here, but my parents and my family, they're first generation, they're strong group, but I grew up in America, so I got like weak group tendencies. And I'm like, okay, I know the family is important, but like I want to be a pastor. And my parents are like, dude, no. I'm like, but I got to be me, right? Like that's, like that's kind of that tension that a lot of us grew up in when, when you feel that struggle between the strong group and the weak group. Now, so this is really important for us to remember because Jesus, in his life, uh, in first century Israel and Jerusalem, guess what kind of culture they had? Strong group. They had strong group culture where Jesus came from. 
Now let's look at this teaching and this experience and this encounter that Jesus has with some people. In Matthew chapter 12, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, he's teaching, his mother, his actual mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak with him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. Okay, remember, strong group society, the family is the most important, and his mom and his brothers, they come and they want to talk to him. And this is what he says. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Oh, what are you doing, Jesus? That's kind, of, that's kind of mean. Who are my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, his followers, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and sister, or my brother and sister and mother. So keeping in mind that Jesus is from a strong group culture, can you guys see how like uncomfortable this is? Like this is a, an extremely radical teaching by Jesus. When his family of origin, his birth family comes to talk to him, and he says, they're not actually my family. My family are these people who do the will of God. So when he does this, when he says this, he's really saying a few different things. And I, I kind of want to zero in on what he's talking about here. The first thing he's saying is Jesus is calling his community of followers his family, which is like really nice. And you guys probably think that, right? Like, oh yeah, the church is a family. And, and, and we use that kind of language to describe the community that we live in. Jesus is calling his community of followers his family. But there are some things that we got to understand culturally about how he understood family at this time that's very, very interesting and very, very challenging and actually quite fascinating, right? When he talks about his family, who does he talk about? When he talks to God, what does he call God? Father. Father. That's the main title that he gives to God. So clearly Jesus likes this like family vibe. And when he talks, to, talks about his, his disciples and, and, and all this stuff, and, and, and when the New Testament writers write about each other, what's the title they give each other? You guys know? Brothers and sisters, right? The word brother in the New Testament is used over 340 times to describe the relationship between believers. And this is really, really interesting. This is really, really interesting because the society and the world they lived in, first of all, did you guys notice that um, in the Bible, nobody has last names. Did you guys know that Christ is not Jesus' last name? You guys knew that, right? Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus was not Jesus Christ. That was his last name. He was Jesus, son of Joseph. Right? If you go all throughout the Bible, nobody has last names. Because everyone is so-and-so, son of so-and-so. So-and-so, son of so And we have entire chapters and many chapters where it's just like, da, son of da, son of da, da, da. And you've read that and maybe you read it and you skipped it because those are like super boring. But the reason why they had, they, they, nobody had last names is because they lived in a, a, a world where family line was established through fathers and sons. And I just learned this too. People in Iceland, do you guys know they don't have last names? I just learned that. That's crazy, right? Because what they do is they kind of have the same thing, but it's a little bit different. It's not son of something. It's like, it's like uh, so for, for Miles, if we lived in Iceland, he would not be Miles Chong. He'd be Miles Christofferson because he'd be son of Christopher Christofferson. Like, that's what it means, right? And so, um, and I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about Emerson, our, our wonderful drummer. If his father was named Emery, he'd be Emerson, 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 son of Emery. I thought that was hilarious. But anyway... So, so, so this is how they established their family line, through fathers and sons, father and son. What this meant was crazy. 
It meant that your wife, a person's wife, was not technically a part of the family. Your mom was not technically a part of your family. You were, but not really, right, legally. And so what this had done and what this had created culturally is then for people in first century Israel and the Mediterranean, right, Greeks, Romans, everyone in that area, because the spouse was like not technically part of the family, your closest, most intimate, most committed, loyal relationship was not to your spouse, as we understand here in America, it was to your siblings, because they're your family. Right, think about that. You guys who like, you fight with your siblings, like in this world, in this family, your siblings were your most treasured, intimate, loyal, committed relationship. And what's the word Jesus used to describe his believers? Brothers and sisters. Like that's how he viewed the relationship that we are to have with one another. So this is like really, really special and really nice. And this idea of the church and the community of followers of Jesus as a family, like we talk about it and it sounds real good and we like it and it sounds really nice, like you're part of a family. And we use that language here at Rock Fellowship, right? You come a couple times, we're like, hey, welcome to the family. You're part of the family now. We use that language because it's really, really nice. But this teaching that Jesus was doing right here, it was radical. It was radical, it was scandalous, and it was offensive in a strong group culture to say that, hey, guess what? I have a new family now. And it's not my brothers and sisters that I was born next to living in the same home. No, it's these people who do the will of the Father. And that's what made it extra scandalous because who was in, who was in this? Who was in his, his, his family now? In Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, he says, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. There's no mention of ethnic group. There's no mention of culture. There's no mention of history. There's no mention of race. It's just people who do the will of my father. That means anyone is in my family. Anyone can be my family. You can be Jew, you can be Gentile, you can be Greek, you can be Roman, which people are like, what are you talking about? You can be Korean, you can be African, you can be Latino, you can be anything. You can be a part of my family. This was a radical and offensive idea to the first century family structure. And so Jesus says, yes, this is my family, but here's what's crazy. What Jesus also is saying is this new family takes priority over his birth family. This new family of anybody the, the, the Romans that we hate, the Greeks that we don't like, those people that we don't know, they're in this family and they take priority over the birth family. Like I said, in, in, in modern, like Western culture, we're like kind of the, the, the rare thing where we, we're kind of weak group, where it's like kind of about individualism, your needs, your desires, what you want is kind of placed above the group, and it's like your individual desires are more important, right? Like that's kind of the world we live in. In fact, we almost see it as virtuous, right? When we hear stories of people where they have expectations of a community and a family, and they break away from those expectations, and, and, tr and they're true to themselves, and they follow their heart, like we see, that, we see them as heroes, Right? And going back to Disney, I've talked about this before. There's so many Disney stories all about that. Right? Frozen is about that. Mulan is about that. Hercules is about that. All of it is like you're supposed to be something, says your community, and you break away. And we're like, yeah, that's fantastic. But that's not the rest of the world. And that's not Jesus' world. 
In Jesus' world, it was like the family, the community is the most important thing. And that's why you can have arranged marriages. Doesn't matter who you want to marry, dude. You got to marry the person that for them, to you to get married, is going to be the best for the family. That's why, we have, that's why they've arranged marriages. So this was like a crazy, crazy thing that he's teaching. And people are like, what do you mean? I'm sure his mother, his brothers and sisters are like, what are you, Jesus, you're, you're, you're going crazy, man. This is insane. But this is what I really want to get at. This is how he viewed family. Okay? This is how Jesus viewed family. Strong group. And when he says, my community of believers, i.e., the church is a family, what is he saying? You see, this is the third thing that we need to understand about this teaching. What he's saying is that his new family was to function as a strong group type family. The church then, oh, you guys see how, how weird this is? Is then to, to be a family, not like we see family in America, but how Jesus saw family in his time. That's what he was thinking. That's how he saw family, not family like in America in the year 2000 and 2022. It's supposed to function as a strong group type family. Now, if you're tracking with me, you're like, that's weird. And that should make you extremely uncomfortable if you're tracking with me, you're following, man. That's very, very uncomfortable. Let me take that previous definition of strong group and let me replace the word group for church and see how crazy this sounds, okay? In a strong group society, a person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a church and responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, development, career, and life in general, including who you marry. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels right and necessary only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. Is anyone like freaking out a little bit about that definition? Right, like what? Like, especially for us from this, like, weak group culture, that sounds, like, very culty, right? That gives me, like, cult vibes, man. And I'll be telling you, that freaks me out. Like, reading that and writing that, I was like, ooh, I feel very uncomfortable saying it. Like, like honestly, I do not want to be in charge of your life, okay? I don't, right? I don't want to be deciding what you should do. Like, I don't want our next board meeting, the agenda item is, like, what is Kalia going to be when she grows up? Like, I don't want that. I don't want us to vote. I second that she's going to be a gardener for the rest of your life. Right? Like, I'm not going to, I don't want to vote on what you're going to do. I definitely do not want to vote on who you're supposed to marry. <laughs> Ed might like that. <laughs> but that's like, man, that's so weird, right? To think of the church, to have that kind of authority and that kind of a role in your life. But what do you do with the truth and the fact that when Jesus said, my church is a family, this is kind of what he was talking about. The church or the community of followers as your primary community. As your primary community. And like, I, I just, I'm, I'm not saying we got to do this, right? Like, I'm not saying that we're going to start doing this and we're going to even strive to get to this this full form of the church. But, but there is some, 
some power to this, isn't there? There is some beauty to there to think about being a part of a community that is that important to you. And yeah, there's like some weird vibes and, and we often see the strong group as kind of oppressive and uncomfortable. But, but, but when we think about it, like there is some beauty and, and it is kind of amazing to think that we could be a part of a community that is so important and, and to be a part of a community that you're cared for so much and loved so much that, that your individual decisions and actions actually impact the community and they care about you and they care about what you do and they care about who you marry and they care about your job. Like there's also something very beautiful about that, that, that when I come to church and I come to this place and I come to this community that, that I see it not as simply a, a place I go to once a week. There's something amazing and beautiful when I see church as more than just an event that I attend once a week or something I do once or twice a week or a building I go to or a place I go to or a thing I do. Like there's something beautiful when it's something deeper and bigger. And right, you, you guys know this, right? You've experienced this before. You know that the most important relationships in your life the most important communities, whether a friend group or a family group or a church or, or, or whatever, a club, an interest group, whatever, the most significant and meaningful relationships that really impact your life and breathe life into you are ones that you are embedded in and committed to and loyal to. Right? There's some truth in that you got to be in it to really experience the beauty of that community. But like you read this and like this is crazy for us in, in, in 2022 in Portland, Oregon. This is crazy. The church cannot tell me what to do and the church cannot tell me what I should be and the church definitely can't tell me who I should marry, right? Like that's a weird, weird sentiment. But you know, for people who, who, um, who grew up in a, in a very strong group kind of culture, it's actually a lot easier, right? Like I just found out this recently. Um, my, my, uh, my grandmother-in-law, is that what you call it? So Tracy's grandmother, I just found out that she never met her husband, Tracy's grandfather. The first time she met him was the night before their wedding. It was the night before their wedding. The first time she met her husband, and it was basically an arranged marriage. This is Korea not that long ago. This is not that long ago. And guess who was a part of the process? Guess who is the one who brought those two individuals together? It was the pastor. Right, like that's, and that sounds crazy to us, but that's what it's like in a struggle. By the way, I don't want to do that, okay? Don't do that. Don't ask me to do that either, right? And I know one day you're going to come to me like, Pastor, do you know anybody? Pastor, do you know anybody? Okay, I get, but I don't want that pressure, okay? I don't want to do that. But that's part of what like the strong group kind of culture was and how Jesus understood the church to be. It's a wildly different way to think about this community, isn't it? To think about it in those terms is, is so, so different. But I think Jesus knew something that we often forget. I think he knew something that we, we often don't think about because we often think about you know, the scars and the damage and the pain. Because we know this, that, that family, yes, can be the source of our greatest pain. For some people, it is. What happened at home, what happened in their family could be a source of their greatest pain. But we also know that family can be the source of our greatest healing. You know, people know that family can be the source of its greatest, greatest insecurities. 
But family can also be the source of someone's greatest strength and confidence. Right? Jesus knew the power of family and community. And when I think about the church and we think about who the head of that family is, it's not me. It's not a pastor. It's not a church leader. It's Jesus himself. Jesus himself says, I am the head of this family. I am the head of this body. And when we think about it in those terms, doesn't it make us think a little bit like maybe, maybe this community is something really, really special. Maybe what this community and this family could be is something worth protecting. And yeah, it's a mess. Yeah, it's a mess, right? Like we got problems and we got issues and, and we, got, we got challenges and we got conflict and we got tension and we got people that we don't like. We got people that rub us the wrong way. But Jesus says we're family. And he says, I'm the head of this family. For me, I think about that and I'm like, man, I can see how if we follow his leading, this community, this family can be the source of people's healing. It could be the source of their strength. Like it could be the source of all uh, that, that, that encourages them and helps them to get through all the challenges that they face. Like that's how it could be. But only if we can begin to make our family, our church family, have greater priority in our lives. And again, I'm not saying like uh, we, we got to decide all these things for you or anything like that. But we have to wonder what would happen if we began to look, as the, look at the church more as a family, not like this American family, but the family that Jesus envisioned. So here's my assumption. My assumption is that you want to protect this mess too. My assumption is that, uh, and this is obviously for people who, who are in this church, a part of this church, that you value this community, that you see something special about here, and that you, you love it, and that's why you're here. Like, I, I'm assuming that, and you want to protect it, and you want to help it to be healthy and vibrant and loving and peaceful and wonderful and, and challenging in the best ways possible. Like, that's my assumption. Now, if, if you don't usually come here, I bet you when you think about your community, you want it to be like that. And what's really important for us to all understand is every single person has a part to play in protecting this mess. Every single person. Why? Because it just takes one person to break community. It just takes one person to ruin community. It's only one person. So we all have a part to play. Whether you've been here your entire life or you're new here, but we all have a part to play to protect this mess. So I'm going to give you guys two questions. Two questions to help us start thinking about the church maybe in a different way. And I'm going to be honest with you. These questions, they sound a little bit guilt trippy, okay? And they sound a little bit borderline manipulative. But I want you to know, that's not what I'm doing here, okay? I'm not trying to guilt anyone. I'm not trying to manipulate anyone. I'm not trying to pull on your strings or make you feel bad. And I also want you to know that these questions are not reactionary. And this sermon is not reactionary. This is not like someone did something, so I'm talking about this, okay? This is not someone said something or I heard about something, so I'm talking. It's not about that. So please know that even though these questions sound a little bit like, you try to just make me feel bad, you try to control me, that's not what I'm going for. But here are two questions that I think if we begin asking, we can start to protect this beautiful thing that we call the church. Here's the first question. Do you feel responsible to the church for your decisions or actions? 
Do you feel responsible to the church for your decisions or actions? Do you realize and understand that what you do and the decisions you make don't just affect you, but also not only just your family or your friends, but it actually impacts your church community? Your decisions actually can affect this group. Like, do you understand that? The reason why is because we love you. That's it. The reason your decisions and what you do affects everyone here is because we love you and we care about you. And when you love and care about someone, what they do impacts and affects you. The church loves you and we care about you. So your decisions affect us. Do you realize that? Do you understand that? And do you feel some responsibility that what I do and say is going to impact, impact a larger group than maybe I expected? Right? Your decisions can bring life into this group. Your decisions can give us strength and encouragement and excitement. But your decisions can also bring d- uh, division. Your, 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 your decision actions can bring hurt and pain as well. Not just to you and one other person, but to the larger church. Right? Do you understand, do you believe, and do you understand that, that your decisions and actions and what you say can hurt the larger church? It can hurt Pastor Jonathan. Don't hurt Pastor Jonathan, guys. All right, don't hurt Pastor Jonathan. It can hurt me. It can hurt the board. It can hurt the leadership. Like, and again, you guys don't know why I'm saying like, oh, that sounds very guilt trippy. Like, but that's not what I'm going for. I want us to understand that your decisions and actions, they don't just affect you. And not even just your family, your friend group, but like this church, like totally. Because we love you and we care about you. So I want you to understand that and realize that idea. The second question is, do you think about the church's best interest in your decisions and actions? You know, when you decide to do something, what goes on in the decision-making process? Obviously, you think about you and your family and your friends and your budget, and you think about all those things. But I wonder, in that conversation that you have in your head or with your wife or with your family, when you make these decisions, do you ever think, what about the church? What's best, not just for me and my family, but but what's best for the church? That's a weird question to ask for me as like a weak group culture person. But you ever wonder like, what's in the best interest? What, 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 What can I do that would actually serve the best interests of the church? You know who did this? Like this, this kind of thing, you knew who asked these questions? It's like the first generation asked these questions, you know? The first generation of like pretty much like any church, right? Like if you're an immigrant family or you're, you're an immigrant, the first generation, like Koreans, they ask these questions. If you were a part of a first generation of a new church, whether it's like ethnic or not, but like, like the start of a church, like they asked these questions. They, they wondered how their actual decisions would impact the larger church. They did it. And for those of you guys like, like me, you grew up in the church and you grew up in a Korean church or an immigrant church, you saw your parents do this and you kind of thought they were crazy. Right, because you saw people who were like, I, I'm not going to buy this or I'm not going to spend this money because I won't have enough money to give to church. And you're like, what? Like that sounds really foreign to us now. Right, but they would make these decisions based on not just what was best for them, but they took into consideration the best interests of the church. And like we, I want you guys to know whether you've been here for a long time or not, Rock Fellowship, we're here because of that. Like all of our Korean churches, for those of you who are, grew up in that, we stand on that. We are here and we exist today because the first generation asked those questions. It wasn't just a thing that they went to once a week. It was their life. 
And so they're like, how can my decisions affect the church? What can I do to, 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 to help the church? If I do this, will it hurt? Will it, you know, and, and I'm not saying it was perfect, right? They had their problems. They had issues, right? Because it's messy. But man, we can't, we can't ignore that, that our, our first generation parents and stuff, like that's how they viewed it. And there's like something really beautiful about that. They considered what was in the best interest of the church in their in their decisions. If we want to protect the community, the family that we have, if we want a community that is, as we say in our mission statement, a loving community, it doesn't happen by accident, guys. It takes each and every single one of us to protect the community, to protect this mess that we call the church family. So I want to boil it down to one simple question that I want you to ask. Right? And, and I'm, I'm not telling you to answer it a certain way, but I just want you to start asking this question in your decisions. This is the question. Boil those two questions and make it real simple down to one question. How will this affect my church family? Just ask that question. And if you ask that question about something and it's like, it's not, then whatever. It doesn't matter. But I think there is power in beginning to simply ask the question, how will this affect my church family? How is what I'm about to say right now going to affect my church family? How is, is what I'm about to say right now about some person, how is that going to affect my church family? How is my, my decision to do this or that, how is it going to affect my church family? And I'm not saying this just because I'm the pastor. I'm saying this because this is how Jesus saw the church family. It was strong group, and I'm not willing to go like all crazy like that, the full form for that definition, but maybe we can at least start asking that question. How will my decisions, how will my words, how will what I do, how will my actions, how will my behavior not just affect my life or my family or my kids or my friends, but how will it affect my church family because my church family is important to me. And this is really important for us because the part of our mission statement is like, that's what we do here. We exist to connect people to a loving community. So it's on all, every single one of us to help make that community loving. I can't do it alone. Pastor Jonathan can't do it alone. The leadership can't do it alone. It's every one of us need to make that decision. Hey, this community is worth protecting. And I will play my part. And so for the next couple weeks, we're going to be introducing a couple different ideas. Things that are going to threaten church community, things that will threaten church family and how to identify them, how to deal with them, and how to make sure we protect our community from that. So if, if this community is important to you, I want to encourage you guys to come back and join us for part two of this series, Protect This Mess. And we hope that you'll come back next week and engage in our community, get embedded in our community, because I believe it is special, it is wonderful, it is life-giving, and it's worth protecting. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, for your word today. It's challenging. And it's hard for me to think of community in, in these terms. But God, I can't get away from the fact that this is how you saw it. And, you know, I know that you don't want the church to be oppressive or controlling or anything like that, Father, but what you called us to do is to have deep commitment to our church family, whatever that looks like for us, wherever that, that is to begin thinking about the fact that our decisions and our words and our behaviors and our actions will impact 
and affect the larger group. So God, there is something beautiful about this place. You know, it's messy and people have issues and we got problems. But there's something beautiful, the fact that we can all come together under you. And you as our father, as the head of this family. And the potential is that this place can be a source of healing, of growth, of joy, of stability, of support for so, for so many people. And God, man, I want, I want, it, I want that, Lord. And I want to do all I can to protect our community. And I pray that you'd be moving on people's hearts today, that they would make that decision as well, to think about how their decisions will affect our community. Lord, help us to be that loving community that we talk about. In your name we pray. Amen.